0: 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Ready or not, here I come. <laughs> I, uh, I used to love hide and seek growing up as a kid. I used to love the, the, the thrill of racing heartbeats as you ran to that perfect hiding spot and then those few tense moments as you waited for your seeker to possibly pass by where you were nestled i used to love hide and seek do you remember what it was like i can still recall some of my favorite hiding spots when i was a kid you know you had the classic like under the bed in the closet, behind the coats. If you were really advanced, you would create a decoy. You'd get some of your pillows and stuffed animals, you'd stack them up in the bed, put the covers over them so it looked like you, or at least you thought so as a kid. Certainly a lot of nostalgia associated with hide-and-seek, right? And it is a game of moments, right? You have those brief ten seconds to go and find that perfect hiding spot as the seeker counts down. And you have those moments of tension, of Am I going to be found, or am I going to remain hidden? Hide and seek. Maybe some of us in the room this morning are playing hide and seek in our lives. We're hiding from each other. Maybe you're hiding from the person sitting next to you. Hiding from your spouse hiding some sort of impropriety in your business, hiding from the very people who love you the most because you're afraid if they were to get close enough to find you and see you that they wouldn't like what they see. Maybe this morning, you're playing hide-and-seek with God. Growing up, we lived on four and a half acres in the middle of central Florida. And so when we would play hide-and-seek at my home, we had to set some ground rules because let's be honest, Finding a 70-pound 10-year-old in the middle of a a four-and-a-half-acre forest is kind of like finding a needle in a haystack. And so in order to make the game fair for the seeker and to make sure that we didn't get too far away from the home, I secretly think it was a rule put in place by our parents to keep us safe, but we had to have these boundaries when we played hide-and-seek at my home. We're going to read a story this morning about a man in the Bible by the name of Jonah, and he's notorious for playing hide-and-seek with God but he had no sort of boundaries. He was trying to get as far away as possible from God. But the truth that he discovered and that we're gonna uncover this morning as we find Jonah together is it is impossible to outrun God. I'm going to be in Jonah this morning. Chapter 1, verse 1, I think is a good place to start. If you have uh, trouble finding it, that's okay. It's a little bitty book. It's just two pages in my Bible. Uh, It's kind of near the end of the Old Testament. It starts this way. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So, what, so what's going on here, right? Just kind of launch you into the story. Who is this Jonah character? Who is Nineveh? Who are the Ninevites? What is this evil that they've done? Well, earlier in scripture, we're told that Jonah is a prophet of God, and it certainly seems like that here, right? Because he's been given a word from God to go and share with the Ninevites. We're told that he is from a, a city in Israel called gath and this is a border town in the northern kingdom of Israel, and it is uh, it borders the nation, the empire. Of Assyria. And these Assyrians, man, they're bad dudes. Nineveh is the capital city, the great city is literally what it was called, of Assyria. And they were known, Ninevites specifically, for their cruelty, their evil ways in battle. Some of the greatest armies ever arisen came out of Nineveh and they would go and ransack neighboring cities. And I know that this might not be appropriate for the Mother's Day sermon, but they would take the heads of their enemies as trophies. This is the type of people we're dealing with. This is the type of evil that God is asking Jonah to go speak out against. So can you imagine that Jonah, who lives in a neighboring city to Assyria, just 500 miles from Nineveh might be a little hesitant to kind of just go waltzing into the great city and be like, hey, uh, God sent me to say, you got to stop, (laughs) right? You can imagine he's a little hesitant. Later on in the story, we find out he's not just hesitant, he actually hates the Ninevites. He doesn't want to go because he's a little scared, right, as we all would be, but he also just hates them, and he doesn't want them to hear the word of God. Whatever the reason may be, verse 3 tells us, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And it says, so he paid the fare... And he went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. What you have to understand about this time uh, in seafaring is when you would have sailors and their crews who would have all of this cargo going from one port city to another port city, the way that they would pay for their passage is they would pick up people who were looking for safe passage between those two cities. And so they would wait at the port until they had enough people to pay for them to get to the other side. And so what would usually happen is you'd have a bunch of people who would pay a part of the fare for the ship to get there. The author of Jonah wants us to know Jonah paid the whole thing. He paid the entire fare because I think Jonah wants to get out of Dodge or rather Joppa, right? He's like, I got to get out of here. I'm running from God. I can't waste any time. Can't be impatient. I'm just going to pay for the the whole fare for the boat. Let's go. And when Jonah goes, he goes, man. Listen, it says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found the ship going to Tarshish, and then he went away from the presence of the Lord, and when he goes away, he goes away. He wants to get away. He goes all the way to a place called Tarshish. This is where Tarshish is. This is where he is, and this is is where God called him to go. It's about a 2,500 mile difference. He's like literally getting off the grid. He's almost off the map. This is the edge of the known world. This is Asia. He's getting out of there. He's running the opposite direction because he wants to get away from God. And I don't know about you this morning, where you are with God, But maybe you can relate to Jonah. Some kind of shame or or fear or hatred towards God has driven this divide between you and and you think your only option is to run away. And so you're flying 100 miles per hour in the opposite direction. This text has good news for us this morning. Notice, and every time... In, in this passage, up till now, after God calls him, Jonah is the one who's acting, right? It says that Jonah rose. Jonah fled. Jonah runs. Jonah pays the fare. He takes matters into his own hands and runs from God. Here is the good news of Jonah. But the Lord. But God because now is a time in the story where God is going to be in acting and God is going to be the one running and pursuing Jonah. Because as we said, it's impossible to outrun God. This is how God pursues him. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so the ship threatened to break up. But the Lord hurled. Now again, I don't want to go over two for Mother's Day. But sometimes there are consequences to running from God. There are consequences to running from God. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Sometimes, sometimes our God is the God who calms the storm. Other times, he's the God who causes the storm. Uh Oh, That might make us feel a little uncomfortable this morning, right? Because we're like, we're real comfortable with the idea of a God who calms our storms. But if we're sitting in the middle of a storm, and you're like, wait, you mean that, you mean something that God... Also has the power to cause them. Yeah, mm-hmm. he can do both. The wrath of God. You're like Jake, it's Mother's Day, man. You gonna talk about the wrath of God on Mother's Day? <laughs> Sorry, guys, it's the text. I gotta do it. Jonah runs from the will of God, so he experiences the wrath of God. This is the wrath of God trying to turn Jonah back to him. But this is what you have to understand. The wrath of God and the will of God, the reason he called you in the first place and the reason he's trying to win you back with his wrath are always motivated by the love of God. Think of it like this. Think of it like, okay, I have two little toddlers, right? They're quite the pair. They like to rebel together, right? That's kind of their thing they're doing right now. I have one that's just a little over two, one that's about to be two. They're real close together and they are mischievous, all right? The other day I walked into my bedroom and I found my daughter, Ayla. She was... <clears throat> in my bedside drawer. And she had taken everything out of my bedside drawer and thrown it all over the bedroom. So you can imagine that she accrued a little bit of the wrath of her father, right? Like, no, this is not how we behave. We don't just take things out of people's drawers and throw them all over the bedroom. So I had to have that conversation with her. I I think she got it. So about four hours later, it's real quiet, I'm like, what's going on here? And I walked back to our bedroom again and now there's two little heads on the other side of my bed. She had brought her brother with her this time. And I walked over and I said, now Ayla, what did I say about getting in the drawer? And she said, but dad, Campbell said, that's her brother. And I said, sweetie, I don't care what Campbell said. I asked you, what did I say? And she accrued a little bit of my wrath in that moment, right? I had to discipline her. And listen, I don't do that just because I don't want to clean up the junk from my, my drawer. I do it because I'm trying to teach her boundaries. I'm trying to teach her discipline. I'm trying to teach her what not to do. And I'm trying to keep her safe because I love her. And that's important because yesterday... I walk into the kitchen, and she's now gotten into the kitchen drawer. She's graduating drawers. She's gotten into the kitchen drawer, and she has scissors in her hands, and she's crying because she had cut her finger because little two-year-olds don't need to be getting into drawers by themselves unsupervised. But she doesn't understand that. I, as her father, do. And I want to keep her safe because I love her. And so sometimes I have to show a little bit of my wrath. Let me explain it to you this way. There's a story that my father tells from time to time about uh, my brother. Uh, My dad used to be an area salesman for John Deere, and he would sell farming-grade tractors, all right, big 3,000-pound tractors. And uh, he would take us to the office sometimes, because my brother and I are little boys. We love tractors, right? So he'd take us, and he would say, listen, you've got to sit in the office, and you cannot come outside into the field where the tractors are. You've got to stay in the office unless you're supervised by me." Well, my brother was there one day, and he didn't listen to my dad's advice. My dad was dealing with a customer, and there was a tractor that they were trying to fix, and he had brought it in on a trailer, and it began to fall off the trailer tracks. And it was going to tilt over and fall. And my dad looks over, and in a split second, he sees my brother standing beneath that tractor. So what did my dad do? He ran as fast as he could, and he tackled my brother, out of the way of that tractor, into the pavement, and skid his body along the pavement. Blood everywhere. My brother is crying. He couldn't understand that moment. He, he felt so much pain. He couldn't understand, why did my dad just tackle me? But he didn't have the understanding to look up and see the tractor that would have killed him. I asked my dad, I said, it must have been hard for you as a father, but would you do it again? He said, you better believe I would do it every time, because I love my children. You see, God will do everything in his power to turn you back toward his will because he loves you and he knows that in his will is the safest place for you. The scriptures tell us that the mariners, the sailors, were afraid and they each cried out to his God and they began to hurl the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Here are these sailors They're on the boat with Jonah, right? And now Jonah's problem has become their problem. And now they're throwing all their precious cargo out of the ship on Jonah's account. Here's the truth. Our disobedience can define our relationships. Our personal disobedience can destroy our relationships. It can cause damage. It can affect other people. And so though it might feel like you're alone in your hiding place, the ramifications of your hiding are spilling out onto those around you. It says Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laying down and was fast asleep. There's this storm going on around him and he's just snoozing. Moms, is this a little bit like your toddlers who play peekaboo with you, right? Who like think by just covering their eyes. They're now invisible to your perception. Peekaboo. I'm still here. <laughs> right? That's what Jonah's doing with God. He's like sleeping in the boat, like maybe if I close my eyes, he'll forget that I'm running from him. It's like, no, Jonah, it's impossible to outrun God. And so the captain comes to him and they say to him, "What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, your God, will give a thought to us that we may not perish and here's the reality that jonah felt the tension that he felt that we feel sometimes it can be hard to call out to god when we're so far from him the sailors man they're doing everything you've heard of the pirates who don't do anything these are the pirates who do everything. They're doing everything in their power. They're throwing everything over the side of the ship. They are bailing water. They're casting lots, trying to figure out whose fault it is. They're praying to their gods. Jonah's asleep, and when they ask him to pray, he can't even bring himself to do that. Because as you know, as I know from times that I've been far from God, it can be hard to call out to him in the middle of a storm when we feel like we're far from him. So the sailors, they cast the lots. The lot falls on Jonah, and they're like, all right, so it looks like it's your fault. They, they're, they're attaching spiritual consequences to this physical storm. And so they say to Jonah, like, dude, what's up? Level with us, man. Who, who are you? What's your name? What'd you do? He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Oh, man, if I was one of those sailors, I would have fell, fallen out at this point. You, the, the God who made the sea— the sea that, we're, that is, we're dying on the sea, Jonah. And then dry land. Man, I could use a little bit of that right now, Jonah. I could use some dry land. You want to call on your God? No, he's too far. Can't even call on him to his God. It says the men were exceedingly afraid. And here's a phrase that seems to come up in every one of the installations of this series. They say to him, What is this that you have done? What have you done, Jonah? And it says, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah met these guys like five minutes ago, and he's already sharing the deepest, darkest secrets with them. But he can't even have the audacity to be honest with his God because it can be hard to call out to God when we are far from him. It feels awkward. We feel distant. We feel like there's this tension between us. It can be hard. And so he says to them, he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Let me just pause right there, right? Jonah, you've been running this whole time, bro. Those legs seem to work pretty good. You think maybe you could just jump out of the boat? I mean, if the problem is you, we've all identified it, why don't you get out of the boat? Pick me up. The cowardice, right? Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then I know that the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me. You think, Jonah? You think? Yeah, we're pretty aware. Thanks for updating us. I've learned that uh, hide and seek, Uh, now that I'm an adult and I have kids, the illusion of it is a little bit more fun for my kids than it is for me, right? Because I'm like all-time seeker, I'll never get to hide. It's a shame. I'd kill them. I would hide the best spots, they'd never find me. I'm always seeking, right? <clears throat> and let's be honest, they're toddlers. They're not the best hiders, right? <clears throat> <laughs> like, I mean, It's not a great hiding spot for Ayla. It's definitely not a good hiding spot for you, Cam. Like, I can see all of you, buddy. You can't hide from your dad. And Campbell runs from that spot as I find him, and wouldn't you know he runs smack dab into his father. It says in the text, he went down. To Joppa. So he paid the fare and went down into the boat. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. And then later, after he's been thrown off of the ship and he's sinking into the water, he prays this to God, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So Jonah's not only as far horizontally away as he can get from God. He's now as far vertically, as he can as well. He's sunk to the very bottom. Maybe, maybe you're there this morning. And you're like, I've, I've hit rock bottom. There's no coming back from this. Here's those words again. <clears throat> and the Lord... But the Lord, when we think our story is over, God is just getting started. For anybody else, jumping out of a boat in the middle of an ocean during a storm means certain death, but God, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What a fantastical story, right? But here's the truth for us this morning you can never run so far or sink so low that you can't be consumed by God's love. You're never too far. Because it's impossible to outrun our God. I'm reminded of the psalmist in Psalm 139. He says, where can I go from your spirit, O Lord? Where can I flee from your presence? Jonah understands that, right? Where can I go? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, like Jonah, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea like maybe Tarshish, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And check this, surely the darkness will hide me, I say, and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you. When we feel like we're hiding from God, Like we're shrouded in darkness. Man, if we would just turn, turn toward him, we'd run smack dab into our Father. So, the question for us this morning is will you slow down long enough to be found? Jonah says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Will you remember? Will you turn back toward God? I love this. It says, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out up onto the dry land. Here's that dry land he's been wishing for, right? Covered in bile. Can you just hear? If you're playing hide and seek with God this morning, can you just hear him shouting to you? Ready or not? Here I come. Ready or not? Ready or not? Because listen, God doesn't care if you're covered in bile. He doesn't care if your life has been put back together yet, ready or not. Jonah still smells like the bile of the belly of the well, and I'm sure he has like a seaweed crown around his head, and he's covered in a fishnet. God doesn't care if you're still covered in the mess that's been consuming you. He doesn't care that you smell like you've been a long way off or that you still show signs that you've sunk all the way to the bottom. He wants you. And whether you know it or not, he's been pursuing you this entire time. So can you hear him? Right or not, here I come. And that can be like that defining moment in hide and seek. When we discover whether or not we're gonna be lost or found. God wants to redefine you this morning as found. And if you're in the room this morning, you're like, Jake, I haven't been running from God, so like this message is not for me. Sorry, the story of Jonah doesn't end there. See, when God redefines us as found, the purpose of our life changes from hiding to seeking. See, you're not off the hook this morning. It's a fish joke. I had to get one in somewhere. <clears throat> The purpose of your life changes from hiding to seeking. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He listens to God now, right? He goes and he goes begrudgingly and he tells him, hey, listen, turn to God. If not, you'll die. God protects him, and wouldn't you know, the whole city, the Bible tells us, even their cattle repent. And you would think Jonah, as a prophet, would be thrilled about that. 120,000 people turn to God in an instant. No, he grumbles, he complains. Because Jonah is not our example of what it looks like to live into our calling. But there is another man who has a lot of parallels to Jonah, who we're called to follow. His name is Jesus. And Jesus shows us the way. You see, where Jonah paid the fare and accrued the cost and he never arrived at his destination, Jesus pays our fare. He takes on our debt that we might receive safe passage to our destination. Where Jonah is hurled unwittingly into the storm created by God's wrath, Jesus willingly throws himself into the storm of God's wrath. Whereas Jonah risked his life so that his enemies might not be saved, Jesus gives his life so that the enemies of God might become friends of God. Jonah is thrown overboard in order to escape God's wrath on him. Jesus jumps overboard to consume God's wrath on our behalf. Three days in the belly of the well, vomited up, covered in bile, and narrowly escaping death, Jesus, three days in a tomb, resurrected to new life, crowned in victory over sin and conquering death. That's good news, right? The question for us in this text this morning is for those of us who are found, who are walking with God, is who do we want to follow? You want to follow Jonah? Or you want to follow Jesus? See, I want to be defined by my commitment to the mission of God. I want to count the cost and do whatever it takes to help people reach their destination in Jesus. I want to appeal to God on the behalf of those who are far from him and throw myself into their storms because I'm so confident that I'm in the will of God when I'm pursuing others that the love of Jesus will protect me. I want Mountaintop. I want our church to be defined as the people that will give our very lives for the sake of the gospel because we want to see all those who are far from God turn back to him. I'd like to see us become a community defined by jumping out of our comfort zones for an opportunity to reach people. Because here's the truth, we've been found. We're no longer hiders, we're seekers. And we take every moment of the rest of our lives to introduce people to the man who rose from the dead, defeated sin and death, and can offer them a new opportunity at life. It can be really easy, right, to look down our noses at Jonah, kind of like he did at the Ninevites, and be like, man, really Jonah? After all you've been through, You're gonna stand there and act like somebody else doesn't deserve the mercy of God? Really? But the author of Jonah does something really interesting. He ends the text with a question. And Jonah never answers it. So who's supposed to? God says to Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 100,000 persons who not know their right hand from their left hand and there's also much cattle? I think the question is intended to be a mirror for us this morning. To ask ourselves, who is it that we believe is beyond saving? When I was a little kid, we used to play hide and seek, uh, and we had this kid that would come over sometimes, and he wasn't really one of our friends, uh, but we let him play anyways. <clears throat> and he was really good at hide and seek, at least the hiding part. Like, too good. I think it was because he was a little weird, so he like, had gotten used to it. But he would always hide in really hard to reach places, and he'd be the last one out there. And I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes we'd just leave him or like start the next round and not tell him. Because the best people at hide and seek, the best players of hide and seek, they're typically the loneliest, right? We have a tendency to forget about them. We live in a city. Of 500,000 people who don't know Jesus. Half a million people. Hiding in plain sight. And they're shrouded in so much darkness that they too can't tell their right hand from their left hand. Are we just gonna forget about them? Do we think that they're worth seeking? And to what lengths are we willing to go to find them? I think it's time we flip the mantra on its head and we adopt God's phrase. Ready or not, here we come. Ready or not, Birmingham, here we come. I don't care what's in your past, I don't care what you've been running from, ready or not, we're coming for you. And we're carrying with us the good news that no matter how far you are from God, it is impossible to outrun his love. And might we be a living representation that can always, that you, Birmingham, can always run out of hiding and back to the Father? Because you just never know. You never know who's out there waiting for their defining moment. And it might seem insignificant to you, but I promise you, it can change their life.